This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Theists, uh, people who believe in God, um, they also want to say things about God. Uh, they talk about God. Uh, they write things about God. And they, they take it that, they, that what they say and what they write, at least some of it, is true, right? So they say true things about uh, God's nature and God's attributes, uh, so they think. And so a question that, that uh, we might wonder about is how do these believers in God know what they're talking about? What justifies them in making uh, the various claims that they do about God and God's nature? What are the sources, or what could be the sources of their uh, knowledge about God? Um, I'll just give you an example here. This is uh, from the uh, First Vatican Council of the Catholic Church. Um, and just worth looking at a, a passage here uh, where various things are, are said about God or affirmed of God. So I'll just, you can read it with me. So the Holy Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman Church believes and acknowledges that there is one true and living God, creator and Lord of heaven and earth, almighty, eternal, immeasurable, incomprehensible, infinite in will, understanding, and every perfection, one, singular, completely simple and unchangeable spiritual substance, distinct from the world, supremely happy in himself and from himself, and inexpressibly loftier than anything besides himself which either exists or can be imagined. Lots of things affirmed there of God, taken to be true about God's nature and attributes. And the question is, um, how do the, the writers of this and other such statements uh, know uh, what they're talking about or what justifies these claims that they make when they, when they make claims about God, when they affirm things of God or deny things of God? Well, one way one might know something uh, about God is through divine revelation. And what I mean by that is basically knowing something about God because God has told us so. Um, how might God tell us so? Um, well, he, he would presumably need to use some sort of means of communicating with us. Maybe it would be a prophet, right? Or maybe it would be some sort of inspired uh, text or book, like, like the Bible, like Holy Scripture. Or maybe it would be uh, through some sort of institution uh, which he has given authority to teach uh, in his name. But the idea here is that there might be some things that we know about God because God has told us so himself. He's communicated these things to us. Um, so here are a number of, of, of passages on the right from sacred scripture, right? Which um, people who believe that sacred scripture is the word of God, that it's inspired, believe that it's divine revelation. It's not simply a collection uh, of writings that show what certain people who wrote them think are true about God. 
It is that, but it's more than that. It also and somehow expresses, when properly interpreted, what God thinks about himself and wants to communicate to us about himself. And so we could look to Scripture as, as a source of knowledge about God, which enables us to affirm certain things of God, right? Uh, and so we find, you know, the Psalms uh, 147, great is our Lord and abundant in power, and under, his understanding is beyond measure. So we get the sense of a pretty uh, impressive being here, right? Powerful, uh, impressive, immeasurable, in fact, in, in, in his understanding. Um, the Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all his doings, right? So he gets further affirmations here. Uh, for I, I, the Lord, do not change, right? Here, a denial that God changes in, in some respect or other, right? Um, something similar there from the next passage from James, right? So one way we might know something about God is because God tells us so, right? And that would be our source of knowledge or justification, divine revelation, okay? Um, but another way we might know something about God and be able to affirm things of God or deny things of God would be through philosophy. Um, and our knowledge of God through philosophy would not be knowledge based on what God himself has told us, but it would be based on what, more or less, what we can figure out on our own uh, through reason and experience, through reasoning uh, carefully. Now, so we have at least these, at least these two sources potentially, for knowing something about God, divine revelation, God tells him himself, and philosophical knowledge about God, what we can figure out about God on our own. Now, in the Catholic tradition, in the, in the Christian tradition more broadly, um, the mainstream of that tradition has thought that there were some things that we can know about God only because God has told us. So this is an image here an artistic image uh, uh, of uh, the Holy Trinity. And the claim that God is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is traditionally thought uh, to be something that we can know only because God has told us so. It's not something we could have figured out on our own just by thinking really hard, right? Even if we were really, really smart, right? It's not something we could know uh, about God. We know it only because God has communicated that to us himself, right? Um, that's, that's been the mainstream view. But the mainstream of the Catholic intellectual tradition has thought that there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can affirm by God and know about God just through philosophy. You might be surprised, but I, I think Everything affirmed of God here in this passage, and there's a lot of it, right, is something that in principle, at least the mainstream of tradition would claim, could be known about God, not simply because God has told us this about himself. Uh, the, the tradition would say he has, he has revealed these things about himself. But even apart from what God has revealed about himself, we could figure this out on our own if we think carefully enough. And so what I wanna talk about uh, tonight 
is how that might be the case. Like how, how do philosophers uh, go about um, in any sort of principled, systematic way, how do philosophers go about affirming certain things of, of God? And why do they think they're justified in doing so? And I want to talk, introduce two main methods, what I, what I take to be the two main methods that philosophers use when they try to say something about God's nature and attributes. Um, the first method we'll look at is called perfect being method. And the second method we'll look at is called first cause method. And interestingly, these two methods are associated with two of the great doctors of, of the church. Uh, in the first case, perfect being method, St. Anselm. And in the second case, first called cause method, method, St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay, so that's what we want to talk about. Introduce, uh, get a sense of what these methods are and how they apply in particular cases to particular things that we might want to affirm about God. Before diving into those methods, though, I, I do want to point out that uh, when we're making statements about God, um, we can notice that some of our statements are affirming things of God, right? So God is powerful. God is perfect. God is good. God is not just knowing, but all-knowing. God is living. God is happy. These are to affirm things of God and to, to proceed along a line of, or a series of affirmations of God, uh, we might call the way of affirmation. Um, but there's also things that theists, believers in God, have, have wanted to, to say, which are largely negations or denying certain things of God. Denying certain things of God that we find very often among his creatures, but which for one reason or another, uh, we say can't be the case of God. So when we say things like God is immaterial, uh, that, that, that can sound like an affirmation, right? Grammatically, but what it really is doing is, is denying something of God. It's saying God is not material or God is not bodily. I'm material and bodily, but God's not, right? Um, God is simple, uh, which, which really amounts at bottom to saying God does not have parts. He's not composed or constructed of parts in any way. God is immutable, is really to say that God does not change. It's a negation. God is eternal, is largely a way of denying that God is constrained or confined uh, by, by time. God is infinite. God is not finite. This is negative theology, it's sometimes called, the way of negation. Um, and it's, it's very prominent. And in fact, in some thinkers like St. Thomas Aquinas, the, the way of negation regulates and governs, in some ways, what we mean when we affirm things of God. Because when we affirm things of God, we have to keep in mind that the, what we're affirming of God may not be exactly the way it is when it's affirmed of creatures. And the reason it can't be is precisely because of all those negations, right, that come forward in negative theology, okay? So we want to look at some affirmations and some negations uh, in both of these two methods, uh, perfect being method and first cause method that philosophers have used when trying to uh, tell us something about God's nature, okay? So perfect being method. Um, 
The, the locus classicus for this method is St. Anselm's Proslogion, okay, in the, the 11th uh, century. Um, and it's a method that begins, it's always, I think, important and interesting to think about where the method begins. It begins with a concept or idea of what God is. It's the concept of God as a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. God is the being than which nothing greater can be conceived. And you start off with that concept in this method. And then from this concept, you can make further inferences that, that God is whatever it is better to be than not to be, given what we understand God to be, a being than which nothing greater can be thought. God has to be better, whatever it's better to be than not to be. So you can take any attribute you might consider. And if it's better to have that attribute or that characteristic than not, then that attribute belongs to God, the most perfect being possible. And in fact, you, you imagine saying, well, maybe that attribute is, it's better to have than not, and it doesn't belong to God, right? Some, somebody suggests, well, maybe it's, maybe it's such and such an attribute. It's better to have than not, but it doesn't belong to God. Well, if it, if it doesn't belong to God, then it seems like you could think of a being that's greater than, than God. Namely, a being that does have this attribute, which it's better to have than not to have. But of course, that would contradict the very concept of God as a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. So it would be contradictory to the very concept of God to deny that God had an attribute that it's better to have than not to have, so God's got to have them all. Right? Now, we, we see uh, St. Anselm in a wonderful passage here from early on in the Proslogion, employing this method. And he, he writes the Proslogion in the form of a prayer, which is why he's going to be addressing uh, God, even though it's this dense philosophical work in a way, he's going to be addressing God as you. Right? He says, what then are you, Lord God, you then whom nothing greater can be thought? But what are you, save that supreme being existing through yourself alone, who made everything else from nothing? For whatever is not this, all that stuff you just said, whatever is not this is less than that which can be thought of. But this can't be thought of you, because you're that than which nothing greater can be thought. What goodness then could be wanting to the supreme good through which every good exists? Thus you are just, truthful, happy, and whatever it is better to be than not to be. For it is better to be just rather than unjust and happy rather than unhappy. So we can think about how this method might be applied uh, to arrive at certain positive attributes of God in the way of affirmation, right? Just consider, is it better to be good or not good? Is it better to be knowing or not knowing? Is it better to be not just knowing, but all-knowing? Is it better to be all-knowing, omniscient, or to have knowledge but only in a limited way? Which is better? Is it better to be powerful or not powerful? All powerful or just a little bit powerful? Which is better? 
Is it better to be living or not living, right? And whatever attribute of, let's say, these two pairs are, is, is better, uh, we would have to affirm of God as the being than which nothing greater can be thought. Otherwise, we're contradicting our very concept or our very idea of God. What about negative attributes where we're negating certain things of God using perfect being method? Well, let's look at a couple of passages from St. Anselm where he is using this method to talk about uh, certain, I, I think, largely negative uh, attributes, denials of God. And so let's look at, at, at what he has to say about God's eternity and then what he has to say about God's simplicity, which is the claim that God doesn't have parts. Okay? So the first passage, um, St. Anselm says, All that which is enclosed in any way by place or time is less than that which no law of place or time constrains. Since then, nothing is greater than you. No place or time confines you. But you exist everywhere and always. And because this can be said of you alone, you alone are unlimited and eternal. So the idea here is that were God constrained, confined by time, we'll focus on that element of this passage, were, he, were his life uh, limited by temporal constraints of any sort, uh, including, I, I think Anselm would say, where his life sort of spread out over time, diffused over time in the way that our lives are, um, that would be a lesser kind of existence than the existence of a being that wasn't so confined or constrained by time and whose life wasn't spread out or diffused over time. And so we should deny that God is subject to this kind of constraint of time or limitation of by time, and therefore we should say that he's, in a way, outside of time or eternal, right? Largely, though, here a, a negation of temporal limitations applied to God. Again, all of this coming from the idea of God as a being than which nothing greater can be thought. Or take this passage, which deals more with uh, divine simplicity, the denial that God has parts. What are you, Lord? What are you? What shall my heart understand you to be? You are assuredly life. You are wisdom. You are truth. You are goodness. You are blessedness. You are eternity. And you are every true good. These are many things. And my limited understanding cannot see them all in one single glance so as to delight in all at once. How then, Lord, are you all these things? Are they parts of you? Are all these different things we just said of you, are they parts of you? Or rather, is each one of these wholly what you are? For whatever is made up of parts is not absolutely one but in some sense, many and other than itself. Whatever is made up of parts. In some sense, many and other than itself. And it can be broken up, whatever has parts. Either actually broken up or by the mind. 
all of which things are foreign to you. Why? Because you are whom nothing greater can be thought. Therefore, there are no parts in you, Lord. So the thought here is that were God to have parts, uh, he wouldn't be a being than which nothing greater can be thought. Because a being that is made up of parts, I mean, among other things, it seems to be other than itself in certain ways. It can be broken up, either actually or by the mind. And that can't be true of a being than which nothing greater can be thought. Because we can think of a better state of being, a being that couldn't possibly be broken up, either actually or by the mind. Okay? So we've got a little taste here of how perfect being method is used right, by philosophers to give uh, an account of the divine nature and divine attributes. Now, there are many more attributes than the ones we've talked about here, but these ones uh, I've used uh, as examples, um, both some affirmations and some, some negations. Let's move then to first cause method. Um, in the locus classicus here, for first cause method is St. Thomas Aquinas. And a great place to look for this is in his Summa Theologiae. First cause method doesn't begin with an idea or concept of God, an idea of what God is. It begins rather with an argument for the existence of a being, who we will later be named God, but an argument for the existence of a being that is needed to account for or explain something we encounter in the world. Possibly just the world itself. But So we're, we're, in, in one way, you might even say it, it, what it starts with is something that needs an explanation, right? We encounter something that calls for an explanation. We reason in an argument for God's existence to God as, as an explanation of that which we're trying to account for. And that's really the first step in first cause method. And then we make further inferences. We reason further about what must be true or false of this being if this being is going to account for the thing in question that we started with. Um, passage from, from, uh, from St. Thomas gives a little sense of, of, of his method uh, here. He, what he wants to t say is that, that the way we know something about God is we reason both to God's existence and further to certain things being true or false of God. We reason from God's effects to God's existence and God's nature. So Thomas says, when an effect is better known than its cause, from the effect we proceed to knowledge of the cause. And from every effect, the existence of its proper cause can be demonstrated. Because since every effect depends on its cause, if the effect exists, the cause must pre-exist. Hence, the existence of God can be demonstrated from those of his effects which are known to us. So, we can come to a knowledge of God's existence, but we can make further inferences about God's nature, all starting off from certain of his effects. Now, we may not know them as his effects initially. We may, not, we may just know them as something that needs explanation, 
But then we reason towards God as the explanation, and then God's going to have to be a certain way or other in order to serve as the kind of explanation that we need. Um, so, I mean, just a, 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 an analogy here, right? So here's, you know, I don't know if your sink has ever looked like this, right? Backed up with water, right? And you might ask ourselves, does, does water backed up in your sink call for an explanation? If we've got water backed up in our sink, what can we infer? Can we infer anything from that? Um, and it looks uh, reasonable that we, we can infer certain things uh, from that, right? We can infer that there is a cause of this backup, right? There's some cause accounting for the backed up water. The, there's a cause of this. It, it exists since the, the effect exists, the effect being the, the water is backed up, right? So there's got to be some cause of it. And, and we can presumably infer other things. Uh, we can infer that certain things, at least minimally, are true and certain things false of the cause. For not just anything could account for the backup, right? I mean, a, a single grain of sand, right, is not accounting for that backup, uh, or a single hair, right? Um, or we, 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 I don't think it would work very well to say, well, just there's just a lot of water down there, right, holding up the water that's in the sink here, because you might say, well, okay, fine, but that water would ultimately drain up unless there was something, you know, blocking it, right? Uh, and again, what's blocking it, we can at least say certain things what, it, what it's not going to be. It's not going to be just something really small like a single grain of sand or a single hair or something like that, right? Something similar to that is going on in first cause method, except we're, we're uh, talking about uh, God. And, so, uh, and, and uh, one of the things this means is that, again, the first cause method is not going to start off with a concept of God, an idea of God, but it's going to start off with an, really with an argument for God's existence based on something that calls for an explanation. Now, we could talk all evening about an argument for God's existence, uh, which is not really the main topic here. So I'm just going to show you briefly the kind of argument that we might have in mind. This is, um, this is inspired by an argument that St. Thomas gives in a work of his called the De Ante Adicentia. Um, so it might start off with this, that, this uh, that some things, there are some things that, that do not exist in virtue of what they are. They don't exist in virtue of their essences. Uh, I think I'm, myself, I think I'm a, an example of such a thing. I don't think I exist in virtue of what I am. I don't exist in virtue of being a man, a human being. I don't, I don't exist in virtue of being Matthew's grant it's consistent with being what I, am, what I am, the kind of thing I am, even down to lots of details, right? It's consistent that this thing that I am not exist, actually, right? I don't exist in virtue of myself. Um, I don't exist in virtue of my essence. I don't exist in virtue of what I am. Um, that would be a, something that we might start off with. There are things like this. It's not just, I bet that you all are like that too, I'm guessing. Right? This microphone is, is such a thing like that, right? Rover, you know, your, your pet golden retriever is like that. Um, and then it, it reasons further, right? It might reason something like, well, whatever does not exist in virtue of its essence must ultimately be caused to exist by something that does exist in virtue of its essence. Now, one would need to supply some support for that premise, of course, 
But the thought here is that here's a, a certain kind of thing, a thing that doesn't exist in virtue of its essence. Ultimately, that's going to have to be explained in terms of something that does exist in virtue of its essence. Add to that a further premise that no more than one thing could exist in virtue of its essence. Like, like premise two, that's not a self-evident premise. One would need to argue for it. But Thomas thinks that those premises, all three of them, are true. And what follows from them uh, is that there's one thing that exists in virtue of its essence, and all other things are ultimately caused to exist by that one thing. There's one thing that exists in virtue of its essence. Everything else is ultimately caused to exist in virtue of that one thing. Now, call the one thing that exists in virtue of its essence God, and call all these other things that don't exist in virtue of their essence, and which are ultimately caused by God, call them creatures. And now you've got an argument here, which if, if sound, if it can be defended, shows that God is the cause ultimately of all that exists apart from himself. Now, from that point, and here's how first cause method works, Aquinas thinks one can make further inferences about God's nature and attributes. We can say more about what this God, we already see that, 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 that he exists in virtue of his essence, right? But we can say further things, Aquinas thinks, that all are, in a way, building on this argument. So let's think about the claim that God is perfect. Um, so Aquinas says, all created perfections are in God. All, all perfections that belong to creatures are in God. Hence, he is spoken of as universally perfect because he lacks not any existence that may be found in any, any genus, any kind of thing. So why does he think God is universally perfect? Or why does he think that all created perfections are found in God? He says, for whatever perfection exists in an effect must be found in the effective cause or the efficient cause. Since therefore God is the first effective cause of things, the perfections of all things must pre-exist in God. So notice how this argument goes if we were to, to, to sort of set it out in steps, numbered steps, right? It starts off, if you will, or at least it has as a, a premise, and it's a useful premise to start with, that God is the ultimate cause of everything that exists, of everything besides God anyway. And that's just the conclusion, right, of that argument for God's existence that we looked at. But then we can add further premises, which will then tell us something more about the nature of God. So God is the ultimate cause of everything else that exists, but whatever perfection exists in an effect must be found in its cause. Any perfection that is found in effect is ultimately going to have to be found in its cause, Aquinas thinks. But then what does that mean? Since everything in, other than God is an effect of God, the perfections of all things 
right? All creatures are going to be contained and found in God himself. So God contains in himself the perfection of everything. So now we know something more about God by first clause method. We know that God is perfect. And we can do something similar uh, building on this, right? To arrive at the affirmation that God is good. God's goodness in, in perfect big method is in a way just built in and God's perfection is in a way just built into the very concept or idea of God. God is a being in which nothing greater can be thought, right? So God's going to be perfect and good, right? But in first cause method, it's an, it's an argument that ultimately begins in something in the world, some effect of God, something that needs to be explained, right? And we reason from there. So uh, Aquinas thinks that the essence of goodness consists in this, that it is in some way desirable. The good is, is that which is desirable, Hence, the philosopher says, goodness is what, the philosopher being here, Aristotle, goodness is what all desire. Now, it is clear that a thing is desirable only insofar as it is perfect, for all desire their own perfection. So, a thing is, is good because it's desirable, but it's desirable because it's perfect. Well, Thomas says, good is attributed to God inasmuch as all desired perfections flow from him as from the first cause, which is the conclusion of the last argument that God was perfect, right? Therefore, as good is in God as in the first cause of all things, it must be in him in a most excellent way, and therefore he is called the supreme good. So if we wanted to, to set this argument out, right, we might say, look, it, it includes this idea that a thing is good insofar as it's desirable. That's what makes a thing good. And that a thing is desirable insofar as it's perfect. But we just saw on the previous slide an argument that God contains the perfection of all things, right? Of all his creatures, of all his effects. So God contains some, the perfection of everything, and it will follow from that that God is good. So we're reasoning through a chain of inferences, again, from our initial argument for God's existence to God's perfection and now to God's goodness. Okay? So perfection and goodness are, are affirmations. It's following the way of affirmation. Um, what about negations? Uh, God is simple, divine simplicity. Again, the claim that God does not have any parts. God is simple sounds like it's an affirmation. It's really, I think, more a negation. It's denying certain things of God, that God has parts. How does Aquinas argue for that in, uh, using first cause method? I mean, the passage I'm going to give you here is just very, very uh, terse and, and succinct. Um, and we'll try to unpack it. So he says the absolute simplicity of God may be shown in many ways, and he first, and then, and then I want to focus on this second uh, way. He says, because every composite, everything that is made up of, of component parts, every composite is posterior to, is subsequent to its component parts, and is dependent on them. 
But God is the first being, or you could read, God is the first cause, ultimately first cause, as shown above. Various ways you might unpack that, but let's begin as a first premise with, again, the conclusion of that, ar- that initial argument for God's existence. God is the cause of everything else. A cause in general is prior to, not posterior to, its effects. Right? Causes are prior to their effects. I don't think Aquinas necessarily means just temporally prior, but kind of prior in the order of being or prior in the order of explanation. A cause is prior to its effects, so God is prior, not posterior to everything else. God is prior to everything else. But whatever has component parts is posterior to, not prior to those parts. So can God have component parts. God's supposed to be prior. It's a conclusion, actually, of, 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 you know, this line of reasoning that God is, is prior to everything else. But were God to have parts, he would be posterior to those parts and not prior to them. So God doesn't have any component parts. In other words, God is simple. doesn't have to do with whether having parts or not makes one greater, makes one better, as it does in perfect being method. It has to do with what we have to say about the first cause if it's going to be the first cause. It can't be posterior to anything, and so it can't have component parts from which it derives. Uh, give you a, a, a few more uh, examples here of negative attributes. Um, divine immutability, how does that go in first cause method? What does it mean to say God is immutable? Again, it, it means to say God cannot undergo change. Here is Thomas's argument. He says, everything which is moved or changed remains as it was in part and passes away in part. As what is moved from whiteness to blackness remains the same as to substance, but of course is different with respect to color. Thus in everything which is moved, there is some kind of composition to be found. There's gonna have to be a diversity of parts in anything that can undergo change. Because there's gotta be something that remains the same, a subject of the change, but it's got to be different in certain respects. And this is going to require diversity of parts in anything that can undergo change. But it has been shown above, last slide, that in God there is no composition. God's not composed of parts, in other words, for he's altogether simple. Hence it is manifest that God cannot be moved. So notice that the argument for God's immutability, the claim that God can't change, builds on the argument from his simplicity, that he doesn't have parts. Because, premise one, everything changeable has component parts, but 
as we just saw in the previous slide of divine simplicity, God, the first cause, can't have any component parts. And so God is not changeable. So God's not changeable is arrived at by reflection ultimately on what's required for the thing to be a first cause of all that exists apart from himself. Again, not from the concept of God as a, as a perfect being, but from what's required if God is to be the first cause, which he was shown to be in the initial argument for God's existence. Let me show you one more. Uh, uh, divine eternity in first cause method. And we just are kind of keep building here. Um, so bear with me here on a, on, a, on a thorny passage and then a little shorter one that follows it. Thomas says, we must reach knowledge of eternity by means of time. What is time? Which is, which is nothing but the numbering, or you might say the counting of movement by before and after. For since succession occurs in every movement, and one part comes after another, the fact that we reckon before and after in movement makes us apprehend time. Time is the measure, if you will, of change or movement. Now, a thing bereft of movement, a thing that can't change, which is always the same, in such a thing there is no before and after. As therefore the idea of time consists in the numbering of before and after in movement, so likewise in the apprehension of uniformity of what is outside movement, that which doesn't undergo change, consists the idea of eternity. And here Thomas puts it in a very pithy and, and terse way. The idea of eternity, God's eternity, follows immutability since the idea of time depends on something being moving or undergoing change. Hence, as God is supremely immutable, it supremely belongs to him to be eternal. In other words, all that is immutable, everything that can't undergo change, uh, can't be something that is a temporal being that can be measured by time. You can only measure time if the thing changes. So everything that can't change, everything that is immutable is, is eternal. And God, it was shown, is immutable. Therefore, God is eternal. So what's interesting here is that Aquinas is first arriving at divine simplicity. The first cause can't have component parts. Then he's arriving at immutability. Nothing without component parts can undergo change. And so if God doesn't have component parts, he's, he's also immutable. And then he arrives at eternity, right? Anything that's immutable is also going to have to be eternal. Building uh, to, uh, in this case, more things that we know that God can't be if he's to be the first cause of all that exists apart from himself. What have we done so far? Uh, we've noted that various ways we might know something about God. 
sources of knowledge about God that might justify us in saying certain things about God, right? There's what God tells us himself in divine revelation, and there's what we can figure out on our own through philosophy, through reasoning carefully. Uh, two main methods for trying to arrive at an understanding of God's nature and attributes philosophically, perfect being method and first cause method. One, perfect being method, which starts off with the concept of God as a being in which nothing greater can be thought, and first cause method, which starts off with something that requires explanation, leading us to posit, infer the existence of God as a first cause, and then we have to make further inferences about what must be true of God or false of God if God is to be the first cause that the argument shows him to be. Which of these methods is better? Well, um, why don't I just talk a little bit about some of the benefits, perhaps, and, and costs of the methods, and I leave it to you uh, to, de to decide, or maybe we can talk in, in discussion about what you think is, is the better method. Um, perfect being method, if you, if you think about the benefits of the method, I think the one that jumps out uh, initially is that it's pretty easy to use, isn't it? Um, in this sense, right, you know, you just, you just start off with God as a being in which nothing greater can be thought. And how does the method work? Just, well, consider any potential attribute. And if you're wondering whether that attribute belongs to God or not, just ask whether it's better to have the attribute or not. If it's better to have it, it belongs to God. If not, it doesn't. There you go. And you can roll out a whole series of divine attributes using that method. So it's pretty easy to use. What are some possible downsides of perfect being method? Well, one possible downside is that the method seems to depend quite a lot on our intuitions about which, which attributes it's truly better to have than not. Now, in some cases, there's likely to be pretty widespread agreement that a certain attribute is better to have than not. Is it better to, be, to have knowledge than not to have knowledge? I think probably you're not going to find many people who think it's better not to have knowledge than to have it. I mean, I know there's the saying, ignorance is bliss and all that, but you know, seriously, right? a being is better if it has knowledge than if, if not. Uh, if it's better if it's powerful than if it's, it's weak, you know, and so on, okay? But there are, there are uh, attributes where there might be a conflict of intuitions about whether it's better to have the attribute or not. Traditionally, proponents of this method have been in agreement that it's better to be immutable and capable of undergoing change than to be mutable. But that... that has been challenged by certain uh, contemporary philosophers of religion who have different intuitions here, right? You know, maybe they've, they've watched a lot of political ads or, or commercials where change is always presented as, as good, right? Uh, <laughs> or something like that, whereas, whereas maybe the people in, a, in a previous generations, right? Maybe they were influenced by uh, Plato and other, you know, Greek philosophers and, and weren't so sure change was good, right? 
And so maybe these people coming from these different cultural environments have different intuitions about whether it's good, good or not to, to undergo change. Well, um, that conflict of intuitions, when you're using perfect being method, is going to le lead to conflicts in your conception of God, isn't it? Right? And so this is a potential downside. And it turns out that if, it's, if you're resting those attributes wholly on intuitions about what properties are truly great making and there's a conflict of intuitions, those are pretty hard uh, uh, disagreements to resolve. Um, another possible downside of perfect being method is you might ask, um, you know, why should I think anything in reality corresponds to my concept of the most perfect being possible? So I can start off with an idea of God as a being than which nothing greater can be thought. And I can then fill out that picture of such a being based on my intuitions. But then how do I know such a being exists? Or what reason do I have for thinking that that being so fleshed out exists? There might be answers perfect being, proponents of perfect being method to give there, but it's a question, right, that one might ask. Right? What about first cause method? Well, benefits of the method, it, it doesn't seem to be a method that turns on our intuitions about which attributes it is better to have than not to have. So immutability, in first cause method, right, you don't arrive at divine immutability based on the thought that it's better to be immutable than not immutable. And so it's no objection to divine immutability if somebody comes along and says, well, actually, I think it would be better to be a changing being than a static, unchanging being. Because it's, it's not about intuition. It's not, that's not what drives it. What drives it is reflection on what must be true, or in this case, not true of God, if God is to be the, the first cause of all that exists apart from himself. What must be true there, so the argument goes, is that God can't have component parts, and therefore God can't undergo change, since ch change requires uh, parthood. So one benefit, uh, it doesn't turn on our intuitions, uh, and therefore doesn't lead to a conflict of intuitions. Another possible benefit here is that um, if the argument for God's existence with which the first cause method begins, and I gave you a sample argument, other arguments for God's existence could be used in this method. Okay, I, the one I gave you was just a, an example. But if such an argument for God's existence, if it's a sound argument, then it establishes the existence of the being that we are talking about. So there isn't a question of, okay, I've got this now conception of a perfect being in mind. Does anything in reality correspond to it? Well, if the argument for God's existence and first cause method works, then it establishes the reality of what we're talking about. So that might be considered a benefit of the method. Downsides of the method, um, well, I, I think, as, as you might have sensed in hearing me talk through the various uh, arguments in first cause method for various attributes, it's a more difficult method to use. 
It requires more elaborate argumentation, right, that involves uh, drawing on uh, various different uh, premises and principles in metaphysics, principles like the perfection of an effect existing in its cause, or principles like for something to undergo change, it's got to have a diversity of parts and things like that. You're going to have to, it's going to require bringing those principles in, supporting them, and all of that is going to be required in order to make much progress in this method. And that's a more, a more difficult, elaborate process than simply thinking about what attributes it's better to have than not to have. So I think there's some costs and benefits of, of both methods, right? And maybe we, we could talk about this or you could think about which method you, you find uh, uh, more appealing. I'd like to close with a question um, because the focus in this talk has been about uh, what philosophy can teach us about the nature of God. And if the tradition is, is right, um, you, and, and certainly if not you, many people would be surprised, philosophy can tell us quite a lot about God, quite a lot about the nature of God. So much uh, so that you, you might even wonder, uh, do we even need divine revelation? Do we even need God to tell us anything ab about himself and his nature? If we can do all, if we can figure all this out on our own, do we even need divine revelation? Well, I think um, even those who've been optimistic about how far philosophy can get us here have thought at least optimistic relative to many people nowadays, um, I think they think, well, certainly, yeah, we, we need divine revelation. Here are a couple of points that, that St. Thomas uh, Aquinas makes um, in response to this question. One, he points out that, look, knowledge of God through philosophy, yeah, it's available. We can know things about God that we just figure out on our own. But it's difficult. It's difficult. It's not accessible to everyone in the sense that you probably have to have a, a certain level of, of, of education, right? Education in some, some logic and some basics of philosophy and so forth to be able to follow the arguments that would be used, certainly in first cause method, right? To come to a knowledge of God's nature that way. So it's difficult, and it's not going to be accessible to everyone. It may be only accessible to know God this way to a, a minority of people uh, uh, who can really see it themselves. Maybe others could accept it on the authority of the, of the specialists, right? But it's not accessible to most people. And Thomas will say it's often mixed with error because we can make mistakes in, in our philosophical reasoning about God. We can make mistakes. And for this reason, it was, it was highly fitting, uh, St. Thomas will say, that God uh, reveals to us some of his own knowledge about himself so that we can come to know him, all, all of us, and not just the few um, who uh, are able to study philosophy. A second reason he would think we need divine revelation, is that we are called to a, a supernatural end, 
that we can't know about through reason. So Aquinas thinks that we are, God created human beings in, in a state of grace. Of course, we, we fell from a state of grace, but God has, is trying to, to save us and renew that grace in us uh, through various means, uh, the most important of which, you know, we, we're just celebrating this week, right? Um, and the ultimate end is the actual vision of God as he is in himself, in a loving and knowing union with God in heaven. And that is, that, that, that is even a, a possibility for human beings, is something that we can't figure out on our own. And it's actually something that Thomas thinks is quite surprising because we, we don't have it within ourselves to achieve that kind of union with God. You know, there's certain things we could do, we have the power to do on our own. Um, you know, we could, uh, you know, I, if I work really hard, I could run a 10 minute mile or something like that. You know, I can figure out some basic arithmetic. I have, as a human being, the capacity to do that. I don't have the capacity to achieve loving union with God in heaven. And no amount of, of careful reflection on myself will enable me to think that that's even a possibility. The only reason Thomas says we have for thinking that's true is because God has told us so, that this is what he wants for us, and that he's going to give us the help to do it and show us how to do it. And so we need divine revelation to know about our supernatural end and to know the means to get to that supernatural end, means that are beyond our own natural capacities. So we can know quite a, a fair, or at least a, a, a mon, Aquinas actually would think what we know about God through philosophy sort of pales in comparison to what we can know about God through divine revelation and ultimately when we see God face to face. Most people, I think, walking around in our time would be surprised that anyone thought you could know as much about God through philosophy as Thomas thinks you can, right? But even as much as he thinks you can know, like all that stuff from that passage from the First Vatican Council, let's say, uh, it's difficult to know it that way, and it leaves out something really important that we couldn't possibly know that way, which is our supernatural end and how to attain it.